Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, our first post-Thanksgiving Citizen Dame, where we're all, I think, a little bit sleepy uh, and and feeling very relaxed and everything. So I am Lauren Humphreys-Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. How was your Thanksgiving, just to, like, get the, the pleasantries out of the way? <laughs> lovely it really was i um i have some good friends that i've actually known since college that are married to each other and they have kids and um a, several years ago we kind of made it a thing that i would go visit them every year for thanksgiving um you know it's like when you're single and you have siblings over the holidays you don't usually get to be the one that gets to pick where you spend your time and so a few years ago, I just told my family, listen, I'll do whatever you guys want me to do at Christmas, but Thanksgiving is my holiday and I'm going to spend it with the family that I created for myself, which is my, my good friends. So, um, yeah, so we went up there this year, we went to, um, we went to the parents of one of them and, uh, that was in Wyoming. And let me tell you, it is cold in Wyoming. It is very, very cold. It was like, 10 degrees or something. I don't know. It was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> this California girl could not handle it. Um, when we were leaving um, after dinner, we were outside and a couple of the like nephews were out there and these like big tough 20 year old guys. And they're like, Oh, it's kind of cold. <laughs> I'm like, okay. If you guys think it's cold, then I feel like I can whine a little bit about how freaking freezing it is. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think that people from a lot of the Midwestern states are just built differently. Like, like there's, oh, yeah. there's, there's a, it, it's a different kind of cold than like, you know, we get cold in New York, but it is a different kind of cold when you go to the Midwest. It's very yep. like, it's, it's not necessarily snowy or anything like that. It's just chilled to the bone. Yeah. And then it's like when the wind picks up or even just a little bit of a breeze, it goes right through you and it is just Oh my gosh. I'm just, I'm not used to that anymore. You know, I went to college in, in Northern Utah and, um, not at BYU and, um, it just, yeah, it would, it would get so cold. And then I would come home to visit my family and it'd be 60 degrees and they're all freezing. And I'm like, Oh, roll the windows down. It's so nice. <laughs> it just, you get, you, you just, when your blood thickens up, you just get used to it. And it's, you know, and then it's fine, but I have not lived in extremely cold weather in a very long time. So I wasn't used to it, but it was, uh, it was fun. You know, I have my big coat and stuff, so it was okay. But, but anyway, yeah, so it was just a nice, a nice week. It was good to get away. I was gone mm -hmm. for most of, most of the week. And, um, it was just a, a really nice time. I haven't gotten to just go and spend time away where I wasn't required to be anywhere. I didn't have to do anything. I could just be somewhere else. And that was just wonderful. So how was yours? That's, that's really nice. I had a very quiet Thanksgiving. Um, I, because I went up to my parents uh, for Halloween, I was like, I'm not going to come home for Thanksgiving because basically if I, if I was going to go home for Thanksgiving, I was going to wind up just staying through Christmas. And that's just yeah. too long. Like I, I, I love my, my hometown, et cetera. It's just a little, it's a little too much. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I just had a nice quiet Thanksgiving here at home. Uh, and, and it was pleasant. It was nice to just sort of relax. And I did manage to break multiple dishes. So that was exciting. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Just like, like literally, literally finished making dinner. I was like, you know, all set to eat. And I went to get out a plate and like an entire, uh, just a gigantic glass bowl just shattered. 
on the floor. Oh, no. My dog fled under the couch. <laughs> uh, so I got to spend a good bit of time cleaning glass up and everything. But otherwise, it was good. Um, <laughs> so awesome. So uh, this week, we're going to close out our November recording. Um, obviously, it's, it's the end of November. Sadness. Um, but we're going to close it out with actually someone whose birthday month is November. Um, she was born on November 19th, 1920. And we we're talking about Jean Tierney. Yay. Uh, a Brooklyner. Yay. <laughs> uh, who is, is just, first of all, she's a fantastic actress, but I think she's one that, that often gets very short shrift um, because she, she did play femme fatales, but she often didn't play femme fatales. She, she didn't get typecast uh, in the same way as people like Lana Turner or even Ava Gardner, or Rita Hayworth got typecast. And uh, and so she did a lot of different films. And actually, she she really got known for doing like comedies. So, so one of her biggest roles uh, was in 1943 in the Ernst Lubitsch comedy Heaven Can Wait. And so this this is much more like you know a light, fluffy, um, fun little movie. And then the year a year later, she does Otto Preminger's Lara which is a completely different film. If you have seen Heaven mm. Can Wait and you see Lara, uh, these are very different roles for her. And I think that Lara is really where she, she begins to get a reputation as a film noir, um, as a film noir figure. And so the two films that um, I want to talk about today, she, she had a very long career. She has some fantastic, um, uh, fantastic credits, including Night in the City, which we talked about last week. So maybe we can talk a little bit about her role in that later. Uh, but the two films we want to talk about today are um, Lara from 1944 and Leave Her to Heaven from 1945. And I want to say right off the bat, we're going to spoil both of these. So if you have not seen Lara, especially Lara, because there are a number of twists in it, um, or Leave Her to Heaven, go and watch them. They are fantastic films. Uh, and then come back and, and listen to what we have to say, especially with Lara, as we were discussing before um, before we started recording. I think it's really hard to talk about this movie without talking about the solution to the mystery, without talking about a number of the twists and the, the um, shifts that happen in the film. Uh, yeah. I, I think that it's really hard actually to discuss anything about it without you know, saying, here's who the killer is, right? Mm -hmm. um, so why don't, we, why don't we start with Lara? This is a, a film that actually opens with our leading lady apparently dead. Uh, and a, an investigation into her murder by um, Detective Mark McPherson, played by Dana Andrews, uh, who is, he's investigating the, the murder of this young woman who was shot in the face with a shotgun. Uh, and pretty much everybody around her has an opinion about who she was, what she was like, and who might have killed her. Um, particularly Waldo Lydecker, her... I, 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 yeah, mentor, I guess, like, like, she's kind of his protege. He certainly frames himself as her mentor. And, uh, and this is played by Clifton Webb in honestly, one of his, his best performances. Like he, he's he so is, good in this. he is so good. He's so funny. And he's so, he's that wonderful combination of likable and unlikable. You're just like, I really enjoy listening to you talk, even though you're a bad person. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like this also, a, like a more, um, like a like a more likable version of Addison Witt or something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and and Webb had um, Webb tended to play these kinds of roles. He he had that sort of. There's a certain queerness to a lot of his performances. There's a certain like cattiness, I guess. Uh, and and this one I think really makes use of all of that. It makes use of like his his humor and that combination of humor and nastiness. Um, that you you kind of enjoy listening to him because he's 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 a, he's mean right, but he's all he's clever at the same time. Um, and interestingly enough, this means that Vincent Price of all people is not the like cattiest, nastiest person on screen. In fact, he's actually kind of likable. Yeah, sort of. Uh, in in I'm in comparison yeah, with uh, with Waldo. Yeah. with Waldo but uh so what do you what do you think about this movie Karen like what are your initial thoughts about it it's it's kind of treated as being one of the greatest of the film noirs 
Yeah. I love Laura. I think because well, that sounds funny to say it that way in a movie that's really about all these people that are obsessed with Laura. But um but yeah, I think I think one of the reasons that I love this film so much and why it has been such an enduring um noir is because of the twists and turns in it and because um you also I I think as interesting as um Vincent Price and Clifton Webb are in it I think what you get with this this detective who um he goes around he, every woman he refers to as a dame and that that's even like an ongoing thing like he gets kind of called out for that because he just doesn't have like he just doesn't have a um a, a very nice view of women he's he's like he's lonely he's bitter he's you know just really married to the job and i think that the way that he is developed throughout this and then the way that he himself becomes you know obsessed with laura too um as he's investigating her murder i think that the setup of this is is so great and i think that um all of these all these characters that he finds himself constantly um enmeshed with and 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 dealing with it's it's such a good um like there's just such good balance between them all um and they're they're all so interesting and so different from each other and by that i'm referring to both the men i'm referring to the housekeeper the aunts like all these people that that are all part of laura's life that all have very like you said um they all had very specific and slightly different views of who she was and i think that that as this detective starts to to build this in his mind he kind of develops this idea of who she was and i think that that the whole setup and the way that that those especially the first half of the movie plays out really builds this interesting film where you think you're watching one thing and then all of a sudden there's a twist and you realize you're watching a different movie and laura isn't who any of us quite thought she was yeah the 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 initial part of the film like a lot of it is narrated by waldo uh, at least the first half of the film right yeah. um and and it's very much like you know, and we're we're putting the viewers put in the position of Mark in the sense that we're learning about this person through the people who knew her. And it's very much, you know, we learn fairly quickly that none of these people are particularly reliable narrators. Um, not all of them have kind of ulterior motives as to why they understood, you know, as to what they understand Lara being. And one of the interesting things I think is is in terms of Waldo is he has this very precise story about who Lara was and what she thought and what she felt and everything. And you see the cracks forming in it fairly early, even though he might not see them. Um, you, could say, you could kind of see his obsession and his, uh, his attempts to kind of impose yeah. his viewpoint on Lara. But one of the things that becomes clearer as the film goes on is that everybody is doing that. You know, Lara was like this. Lara felt this way. Lara behaved like this. Lara, you know, Lara did these things. Um, and Mark also begins imposing his own viewpoint on her. And so, you know, there's there's this whole thing about him basically falling in love with a portrait of her. Right. And and it's a it's it a beautiful portrait. It's a beautiful portrait, <laughs> but it's it's not just the physical portrait. It is also the portrait that is being painted by all of these other people. Right. And, and he's got a very precise concept about who she is. And he never really lets go of it. Um, that's, that's one of the things that I think bothers me a little bit about this film, um, although it, it's, it, might, it might also be part of the intent, is that at no point does Lara really get to define her own past. Um, she does sort of remain an enigma in a lot of ways and partially because so much of what we know about her up to the point of the murder is being told by other people and we never really get that backstory from her that's true so so the big the big twist obviously is that lara is actually still alive uh sorry what that's a surprise well, and I remember, like, I was, I was saying earlier to you, uh, I remember watching this film for the first time, and I really thought that, like, oh, this is a really interesting idea that, like, you've got your leading lady dead mm -hmm. at the very beginning of the film, and you're only showing her in flashback. And then I got halfway through the film, it's just like, 
oh, she's not dead. Okay. So this is like going in a different direction than I thought it was. Um, but yeah, so, so she shows up, right. Not knowing, not, not apparently not being aware that, um, you know, people have been looking for her killer for the past few days. Um, she walks into her apartment and I'm always amazed at like, you know, how she walks into her apartment and she's like, Mark is sitting there, right? He's like in her apartment. He's just like, who the hell are you? What's happening? What is going on? And then he immediately begins dictating things to her. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, bro, like if I was, if I walked into my home and discovered this dude just like sitting there and like, what the fuck are you doing here? It's, it's like, it's, it's this very, he's very high handed about everything. Yeah. Um, and, and then of course it, it develops out of that where it's like, okay, so she's actually alive. So who's dead, right? Cause someone died, someone was shot. Uh, and, yeah, and there was a body. <laughs> yeah. And didn't, you know, who else knew about this? Like was the intended victim, Laura or was the intended victim, the, the woman who's dead, um, you know, so it de- it definitely shifts the the conversation. But I like the fact that this is very much about um, perceptions of this woman and who this woman is, and the and the fact that we never really get any more than Mark does. We never really get who she is. All of these different men, in particular, impose their views on her and impose their fantasies in a lot of ways. And we never really get like, okay, what does she actually feel? Um, what are her real feelings about these people? What, you know, what was her actual experience? So Waldo has this whole narrative about like, oh, she adored me. She thought that I was the most brilliant person on the planet. You know, all of this stuff. It's just like, well, how much of that is like actually true? And how much of that is something that you're imposing on her that you believe? Mm-hmm. Um, and where, where does the truth about Lara begin and end? No, I, I, I agree with you that I think one of the, if there's a, um, like if there's a um, downside to this movie, it is the fact that she doesn't get to tell her own story. But I think that what, um, I think that it's very interesting what is told about her. And I think, yeah, even when you get to, when we see her and we hear her version of what's, um, where she's been, I think that it leads to some really interesting um like it, it just adds this other twist of like is she the actual murderer if she's not the victim is she the actual murderer and i think that um i had a point and i lost it um yeah i just i think that um well it complicates yeah. our understanding of her. it does but but to your point we never get the opportunity to like even when we find out that no she's not either one um we never get to that point where we get to to know really who she is we just get to hear all of her explanations and 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 understanding her relationships with some of the people that are around her does help us to understand that none of them were exactly right like she's you know it's like everybody that knows you would tell me a different version of of who they see you as and i would too you know but that's not who you necessarily see yourself as and and I think that that's what we get here. Even when we we understand a little bit more about who she is, once we get get acquainted with her, we still don't mm-hmm. really know. Well, I I do think that she she becomes this repository of fantasy almost because yeah. she's dead, right? Because she's dead for the first half of the film, um, and so we only know her through what is being said about her, and we see flashbacks, right? So we we do see her. Um, but, but it's still being told through these perspectives that we know, like I say, fairly early on that they're not dependable. Yeah. We see her through other people telling stories about their experiences with her. Yeah. She's never the narrator. And, and what's being inferred then also by Mark and by the camera and, and by the rest of the audience about who she is. So, so up until the point that she reappears, she is a victim, right? That That's what we see her as. She's like, oh, this brilliant light who burned so brightly and then was destroyed. And then when she reappears, just like, oh, this is the, it's kind of the fantasy made flesh. Yeah. Um. So, and I, I think that that's part of what's disconcerting also in, in Mark's experience is that, you know, he, she reappears basically right at the point where he's had this conversation with Waldo where, where we find out, right, that Mark has, you know, put in a bid for the portrait of her. Yeah. Um, 
is, and Waldo essentially accuses him, rightly so. This is this is one time when Waldo actually has very good perception. Um, just like, and he's basically like, bro, this is weird. You are obsessed with a dead woman. Yeah. Uh, a I woman that you never knew. But I think the reason that Waldo's able to see that is because he's obsessed with her too. He did know yeah. her. And, but that's, I think, why he's able to really see it is he, he has this sort of, um, possession of her if not in reality then certainly in his mind like you know not it's not even quite at least to to my viewing it's not quite that he feels like she owes him it's just that like for building her career or anything he did that because he wanted her to uh to understand how much he he loved and admired her but I think that there's a sense of like, well, why does, you know, why wouldn't she love me back when I've done all these things, I think. But because of that, he's able to, he gets really, um, it's almost like he gets offended by the fact that other men love her too, instead of understanding that like, yeah, of course other men love her too. She's great, you know? Well, it, it goes back to actually Vera. Kasperi quote and Vera Kasperi was one of the screenwriters on Lara um, and and this this was forwarded on to us by our, our friend Nanina um, and Kaspari said I thought of the character during some ordeals in the studios and there came to mind the real killer the man who does away with what he can't possess um, and I mean that that's yeah obviously a simplistic view of, of who and what Waldo is but that's definitely the way that the film progresses one of the things yeah. that that Waldo that you see long before it's revealed that Waldo is the killer right um, that you see the level of possession that he has of her mm-hmm. and and you know and even in his own narrative so he talks about you know uh uh, the, finding out that this artist is interested in her and writing these horrible things about this artist and kind of getting her, according to him, again, and, and we are only seeing this through him, um, getting her to, you know, break up with the artist and, and never date him. And he, and he obviously pulls the same thing and he talks about doing the same thing to all of these other men that are interested in Lara. And there there is this weird it's a it's an odd thing because there's never an indication that he is like that he's in love with her really right it's not like he's saying like oh i want you to marry me and and right. and run away yeah, with me or anything true. it's just that he can't stand other men quote possessing her mm-hmm. um and and he he pulls that also again with shelby the vincent price character who rightly or wrongly you know shelby is not a great guy right um but he he tries to do the same thing he says you know here are all of the bad things that are about him here are he interferes and this is what she even says to him is that he interferes constantly in her relationship and tries to destroy the relationship uh right from the very beginning and then he tries to do the same thing with mark and it it gets it escalates obviously yeah. Um, and, and one of the things about those situations, too, is that um, in his obsession with her, he doesn't see that she she has a head on her shoulders. Like, yeah, sure. She's she's willing to marry Shelby, but it's not because she is like head over heels for him or thinks he's the greatest in the whole world or anything. It's, you know, it's it's like, sure, he, he's a, he's a decent person they can have a, a good life together. You know, it's like, she, he doesn't, I guess he doesn't, um, he doesn't recognize her ability to discern. He thinks that he's like protecting her from, from these, these men too. Yeah, she, well, she's not a person in a lot of ways. Right. Like, like I said, I think that it goes back to that idea of, of the portrait of, right. The image of her. Um, and he's put all of, all of everything that he wants, I guess, into her. Yeah. And, and it's not something she can't, she, first of all, she can't fulfill it, right? Because she is a human being. Um, and, and second of all, part of, part of that is that he doesn't necessarily want to possess her. And I think that we should talk a little bit about actually the, the typing of Waldo, um, uh, especially in light of some of the things we talked about yeah. in terms of queered characters, right? Um, but it's, so it isn't necessarily that he wants to marry her and, and have children with her or anything like that. It isn't that kind of simple. And so he's jealous is that he's jealous of the very fact that anyone could view her outside of himself, I guess. Right. Or that she would give her attention to anybody else. Like he wants to, 
he wants to be the the one who has her time her attention yeah. her her admiration um in whatever facet that is yeah he he's he's jealous of her time he's jealous of her attention yeah well and he he talks about you know people like shelby and like mark who are just like oh these these pretty boys right these these men who these simplistic men these men who who only who and there there is a sexual component to it in the sense that you know he talks about mark as being like oh he's not he's gonna paw at you right um there's there's this whole thing of like it's going to be simplistic and and you know almost bestial (laughs) at some level it's not going to be this this great highfalutin intellectual relationship and so there's an unwillingness even I, i think a lot of ways to look at her as being a sexual person um and as being attracted to good-looking men <laughs> mm-hmm. so he, he's he's got to narrow it and simplify it and say like this is damaging this isn't real right yeah but i also think it's 1944 and there's an element of like if they don't even if they don't say it outright i think that they were counting on the audience to assume that um that waldo is in love with her that i mean and we can talk about yeah. you know looking at films now and understanding a bit of a bit more about the the time period and what was you know the subtext and all that but i think in 1944 i think a lot of people viewing it i mean i could show this movie to a lot of people in 2022 and they would just assume that he's in love with her and really does want to marry her and not even notice that he never actually says anything of the sort yeah i I think that at a, at a deeper level, though, it's more that he's obsessed with her, that he right. he wants oh, to absolutely. he wants to control absolutely. her. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so I I struggle. I don't know. I guess I struggle to view this as necessarily a, a maybe, you know, saying, you know, what does what does being in love mean? We could get really philosophical <laughs> about this. <laughs> but sense. but I there there's a lack of a sexual component to it i guess oh, absolutely there and is. i think I, and i do think that that's intentional both in terms of the casting of clifton webb and in the construction of waldo's character he's yeah. he's you know i mean how different ways you want to describe him he's a feat right he's effeminate um he's got he's older he's got this very precise way of talking he's very clever and like i say caddy he's definitely a queered character mm-hmm. oh, um absolutely. even even though it's never highlighted, you know, it's never said that like, oh, he's got, you know, he he's not in love with other men or anything like that. But there's a queerness to him and a queerness that in this case also is a part of his perversity. Right. Mm-hmm. So it isn't so much that, you know, and he's being played off against characters like Mark, who is this, you know, played by Dana Andrews, but he's also played by the by um He's kind of this rumpled detective, you know. He's got a silver shin bone from going into uh, a uh, a crime scene and getting shot, and like all of this stuff. He's very much typed as this manly man, and you're setting him against Waldo, who is exactly the opposite. And then you've got Shelby, who's kind of in between. Um, and and I, I do think that that's a very deliberate choice in terms of the way that this is being played. Waldo, even more so than someone like Addison DeWitt is not particularly he he may not be gay but he's not straight basically in in the 1940s vision of of what sexuality is i totally agree with you and i do also agree that it is intentional um i'm just saying that i think that there are a lot of people who watch this who don't see it that way or like wouldn't catch that and i don't think that reading it as he's in love with her is is um it's not it's not the intention but i don't think it's necessarily incorrect to view it that way and i don't think that that seeing it that way um uh, it definitely is a different movie if it's love or if it's not but i don't think it's significantly different that um that you're like watching it wrong if you see it that way i guess is what i'm trying to say i'm not really uh, sure what my point is <laughs> no not not at all i'm not i'm not saying that there's a correct interpretation here like i, but I I'm, but I'm saying i completely agree with you i think that that your interpretation is absolutely correct and was intentional 
I just think that it doesn't fundamentally change the movie for people who are, I just wanted to point out that like, yeah. I know plenty of people who would watch this and think, oh yeah, no, he's in love with her and that's how it goes, you know? And I don't think it's necessarily, um, I don't think it changes the movie enough either way that it's like a right or a wrong. Well, and I, I think that it goes, it goes back to, you know, maybe what um, Kaspari's quote is, is getting at. And again, you know, you never want to take the writer's intent or whatever is, is the sole word on the film right. at all. Um, but, but it is, is that there's, there's a, at some level Waldo cannot have her, mm-hmm. right? He, and it's not even that he obviously does have her to a certain degree. She's dependent on him in a lot of ways. Uh, at least at the beginning, she does obviously have a, a relationship with him, right? A, a, and an, a platonic relationship, not a romantic one. Um, but there is something that he he can't possess her at some level. He can't own the image that he has of her as long as she is alive. Once she's dead, in his view, he can control the perception of her. He can control who she is and what she is mm-hmm. and so her coming back to life as it were challenges all of that and not not just in the fact that he thought he had killed her and she and he didn't <laughs> but but also in that she comes back and she repossesses the image of herself yeah um and and it is i think interesting that the film allows that but at the same time keeps her very enigmatic Right. And keeps her enigmatic also from the other men, including Mark. Right. So there's this whole thing where like they kind of begin a relationship, um, but not really like there's there's not a great deal of depth to that that connection or that relationship. I, I One of the things that I had mentioned this on Twitter and Nanina actually responded to me. She was like, oh, she's her relationship with Mark isn't going to last. And it's pointed out the fact that she goes through men. Like she has, even in Waldo's accounting, she has multiple men, like multiple boyfriends that she obviously has relationships with. And, you know, how much of that is Waldo kind of interfering in her in her love life? But how much of it really is that she doesn't have these strong connections to these men? These are not fulfilling her at, at some I, level. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think a big reason for that, and this is kind of coming back to what I was uh, saying before about... Um, about Waldo not really trusting her instincts on these relationships with men. And I think it's especially apparent with Mark um, as far as just the fact that she, she knows the difference between a deep connection and a shallow one. And, you know, Mark is obsessed with her. All these men are obsessed with, with her, but it's not even her. It's who they think that she is. And I, I think that even if not overtly, like, not outright she she can sense that and i think that's why she has all these relationships that don't last is because none of them really see her and none of them really know her and and that that is something that matters to her well and i think that that extends to the viewer as well because and and this you know to 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 go to to tierney's performance in particular she's very she is the 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 word that i keep on coming back to is enigmatic right Mm -hmm. that you know so yeah we see her in flashback initially and then you know when we actually get to the the real period right um where where she returns and we have formed much like mark we have formed our image of laura um through the stories of other people and then when we meet her, so we're kind of at a, at a loss in that we're not meeting her uh, with, you know, coming in without any sort of preconceived notions. We're coming in with a lot of preconceived notions. Right. And the film never completely upends that, right? It never really shows, like, it never lets her be the narrator at some level. And mm-hmm. I actually don't think that that's a weakness of the film. I don't think that that's, like, taking away her agency or anything like that. It, it means that it's just, like, we don't understand who this person actually is any yeah, more than any of, of these point. other people do. We can only, all we can do is impose our view on her and that will not enable us to understand her. Um, right. So she has a degree of control and agency over her own image because she comes back to life, right? But even the viewer can't resist, right? Imposing our viewpoint. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and, and I think that Jean Tierney's screen presence is very much a part of that. She is, 
she she was in a lot of like like we say she was in a lot of different kinds of films um but there there is sometimes a sense that she she remains almost an enigma she's difficult to under it's sometimes difficult to understand her character's motivations um and why they make why she makes the choices that she does and i i don't want to say that she's like blank or anything like that i think that she has a depth that it's difficult to get to sometimes in a lot of her films and particularly in this one mm-hmm um the the other the other film that I, I go back to is actually a film that she made with Vincent Price again in in later in 1946 is uh, Dragonwick if you've ever seen Dragonwick I have not which is not a film noir at all but it's kind of a it's based on a book but it's basically it's basically a Jane Eyre sort of story uh and and she is very much like you know the this is kind of the difference where she's this young woman who gets wrapped up into this mad romance, right? With this dashing man who turns out to be a total psychopath um, because he's played by Vincent Price, but he's a very attractive psychopath. Uh, and because he's played by Vincent Price. Because he's played by Vincent Price. And it <laughs> it is one of those interesting ones where she did a number of films with him actually. And each time it's just like, I mean, you really just want to go for the bisexual mess over here. Like, because, because she's got this, you know, these good looking, but very kind of bland leading men. And then she's got like Vincent Price over here. It's just like, he, you are 100% wrong for her, but also. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but to, so Tierney's performance in, in Lara in particular, I think kind of contributes to that that sense of like giving a great deal of depth to a character that everyone else in the film is does not want to have depth i think that that's maybe what it comes down to i don't know if that makes sense it does i I think it does um so any other thoughts about laura before we move on to another film uh great and everyone needs to see it if they haven't you do have to rent it. It's like very rarely on, I guess occasionally it's on Criterion, but it hasn't been for a long time. I always look for it. And um, yeah, but you can was, rent it everywhere. It was on Criterion briefly. There was an Otto Preminger collection that they oh. they ran and it was, it was on Criterion channel and then it went off. It's also available, by the way, on Blu-ray for like 10 bucks. So, and it's absolutely worth it. It's worth the investment. It very much is. It's a it's a really fascinating film. So, um, so like I say, Tierney did a number of uh, of film noir, including uh, a couple more actually with um, with uh, Dana Andrews, including Where the Sidewalk Ends, and then she was in Night in the City with Richard Widmark, uh, which we talked about the other week, and plays a very you know she's not a that, speaking of complexity, it's not a very complex character. Um but is is sort of there there's moral support i guess there for so she's there because we need someone to root for i guess <laughs> yeah probably um but the other big one and i know that you have not seen this yet karen um and i'm going to encourage you to watch it because it's a fantastic film the other, yet. <laughs> the, the other big one is um leave her to heaven which is a, a 1945 film. So this is a year after uh, um, Lara comes out. It's a 1945 film. It's in Technicolor, but it is very much a noir. And she plays um, Ellen Barrent, who is traveling in Mexico and becomes attracted to this young man, Richard, played by um, Cornell Wilde. And they begin to have this sort of connection and relationship. He's a writer. She's like read his books. Um, they begin to develop this connection and relationship and eventually after this major whirlwind romance get married and it is the worst idea he has ever had uh, because essentially she's, she's crazy and we know this fairly early on in, in this film because she has a not terribly healthy obsession with her father uh, who has died and she keeps on comparing her new husband to her father and in fact, numerous people, including her own mother and sister, are like, I don't think you should marry her. This is probably a bad idea. You know, there, there is this sense throughout the entire film, before we even really know what the issue is with, with Ellen, um, that, that there's something off about her. There's something wrong with her. But she's also this very, she's very beautiful and glamorous and desirable, et cetera. Um, 
there are a lot of really interesting elements to this film, but one of the things that that I really like um, and that I think actually complicates the the audiences, maybe not so much in the in the contemporary period, but definitely in the current period. Uh, about our feelings about Ellen is that most of her, you know, quote, evil springs from an unwillingness to be a caregiver. And essentially what we find out is after they, after she's gotten married to this man, um, we find out that he has a, a younger brother who is crippled by polio. And the, he decides like, oh, my brother is going to live with us. Not only is he going to live with us, but you're going to take care of him. So you're going to care. So he, he basically gets his new wife to be the caregiver for his younger brother um, who needs help, who needs like a, a great deal of care because he has because he's had polio, because he has all of these issues. Um, essentially, what happens is and again, this is a spoiler alert for Leave Her to Heaven. Uh, Ellen allows the brother to drown. So she sees him drowning and she does not save him. Um, the next kind of jump is she becomes pregnant and doesn't want to be pregnant. In fact, she talks to her husband about how she doesn't want to have a baby, but she, she is having babies. So, it's, so a lot of the evil and a lot of the way that she expresses this quote, evil character is via her, um, her unwillingness to fit into particular feminine roles. She does not want to be a caregiver. She does not want to be a mother. Um, she, what she wants and what she expresses consistently to her husband, is she wants to be alone with her husband and she's never allowed to be. Uh, and, and again, there is definitely this sexual component to, to this relationship that she is, she deeply desires him. Like she wants to have sex with him. Um, and what she doesn't want to do is to fulfill all of the other feminine roles. She doesn't want to be the sweet mother at home taking care of her baby. She doesn't want to be the caregiver for his brother. She, she wants to be alone with her husband. And it's, it's a really interesting film in the sense that the film definitely views her as monstrous for this. Rightfully so. I'm not saying that like, oh, it's a good thing that the brother dies or that, you know, you should try to give yourself a miscarriage or anything like that. But it's really interesting in light of, I think, our, our contemporary moment in feminism and, and, and some of the post-feminist discourse that the main issue is that this is a woman who is completely incapable of fulfilling the roles that society wants to impose on her as a woman. And it warps her. Uh, it, it creates destruction in her. It, she And she destroys people, right? She destroys herself. She destroys... Um, the people that she loves, she destroys innocent people, but a lot of it can actually be traced back to uh, her being forced at some level to fulfill a role that she does not and cannot fulfill. And this is this is definitely being typed as her being her missing something in, in somewhere. There's something being seriously wrong with her that she's not capable of fulfilling these roles. Um, but another reading, and, and certainly against the grain reading, is the more feminist reading, which is that the society itself is what warps her, because she cannot, she can't behave in the way that society expects her to. So those are my thoughts about Leave Her to Heaven. Um, do you have any thoughts about what I said, Karen? I think that I need to watch this movie today. <laughs> <laughs> it, um, it, no, I, I think just really, though, um, which, by the way, I'm looking at. It's only available on Flix, and I don't have that. But anyway, uh, I will find it. But um, no, I, I think that this is something that that we touched on last week. You've talked about a little bit of of just these women, especially in this particular period in film, where they're um, they're vilified for having very progressive um, wants and desires, and wanting and by that I mean like wanting to have some ownership over their own lives and wanting to have a say in in their destination and um, I just I think that that's such an interesting thing and I, I think that's one of the reasons why some of these films are so much fun to watch in you know in the 21st century not in a oh look at how you know look at how quaint things used to be but more of a no look at how repressed women used to be and um and I think that there's so much, you know, I say this all the time, but people don't change. And I think that there's so much of that, 
that we can see, especially in films from the 30s to the to the 60s, where you can really see uh, women becoming like either, if not overtly the villain, at least definitely being um, turned into a little bit, being looked at a little bit as as monsters or or outside of of the the norm, just because they uh, they want to control their own destinies. Yeah, it's it's that there there is a certain there has been a, a feminist reclamation at some level of the femme fatale, and that's not saying you know. And then people are always like, "What do you mean? You well, she shouldn't have murdered a, a uh, crippled boy." It's just like that's not no, she shouldn't have. But the film itself vilifies the the thing that makes her monstrous right. is what is required of her by the society. It doesn't so it represses her and it warps her basically. Yes. Murder is um, bad. Murder, we should <laughs> not do murder. I do not condone murder, but I think that what I do condone is is women getting to be in charge of their own lives and not being in a yeah. situation where they want to murder in the first place. Yeah, it's it's similar to what we were talking about um, last week. We talked about the, the postman always rings twice and that the, yeah. the big turn is when Lana Turner is just like, I do not want to be the caregiver of you know, my husband and his sister. That's not something that I want to do. And she doesn't have any escape, basically, because right. that is what society requires of her. Um, and and it does, I think that Leave Her to Heaven in particular goes back to this whole idea of like women are supposed to be self-sacrificing. You're supposed to be caring, right? Mm-hmm. You're supposed to want to be a mom. You're supposed to want to have a baby. You're supposed to want to take care of, particularly the men in your life. And if you don't, if you refuse that, or that's not something that you desire, there is something wrong with you. Right. Um, and, and in this particular case, the what is wrong with her then gets kind of blown up, right? It, it, it warps her more and more and turns her into a greater and greater monster as she tries to escape. So yeah, you, you get a lot of these femme fatales. Um, double indemnity is another one where you get women trapped in marriages, women trapped in situations where they cannot escape and they're vilified for it, like you say. But what, what it really comes down to is I'm these women are not allowed to exist outside of a very um, intense and suppressive structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yes, I do recommend Leave Her to Heaven. Um, That's one that, again, it was on the Criterion channel for a little while. It is on Criterion Disc. Uh, It's it's a fantastic film. It's a very odd film because I think that if you don't read it against the grain, you're like, this is really uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) um but again you know going back to jean jean tierney uh she this is a very different role for her from like lara or from some of her comedic roles um and she she does a great job again at giving this very complex psychological portrait of this woman who you know basically wants to be alone with her husband that's that's like the major force in her life (laughs) Um, but, but this woman who like goes to greater and greater lengths to, um, you know, shape the world around her according to what she desires. And she is warped. She is damaged. Um, there is something wrong with her at at that, at that sense, because she is willing to commit murder, um, in order to kind of escape from these confines. Um, but her, her performance in particular, again, there, there's a scene. So the scene where she lets the brother drown so much of it just is about lingering on her face as she watches this happen and doesn't do anything um and and it's again that it goes back to that enigma that enigmatic nature of of her performances that there's so much going on underneath but on the surface it's very placid it's very calm so yes i i wanted to see it I really recommend it. Definitely, you know, get a hold of it. It's it's a fantastic film. It's beautiful Technicolor too. So it's a noir in Technicolor. So it's just great. Um, well, those were the two films that I really wanted to talk about. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about about Jean Tierney? Um, she's great, and if you can't find some of her movies on, you know, traditional streaming sources, you can find some of them like um, um, Where the Sidewalk Ends and some others you know you can can find them yes (laughs) they are available (laughs) yeah (laughs) they are 
Um, so just to close this out, have you been watching anything interesting this week, Karen? Anything that you want to recommend to people? Um, so I haven't really seen, well, okay, no. I was about to say, I haven't really seen anything new, but that's not true. Um, I did see Strange World, which is the new Disney animated movie that a lot of people are talking about. Um, mostly they're talking about it being a quote unquote flop. Um, and a lot of people are blaming the representation on why the movie is not doing well. Um, it is the first, this is really true officially the first animated Disney movie with a gay lead. Um, I know they've tried to slip it in before and claim like, oh no, this person's totally gay. And it's like, yeah, you did that so that you could, you, they do these things in certain ways so they can erase it for other markets. But this movie, um, it's a, you know, at the core, it's about a family. It's a, it starts off as a father and a son who the, the dad is an explorer. The son doesn't want to be an explorer. He wants to be a farmer. And they have a big parting of the ways. And the son goes off and becomes a farmer and starts his own life. And he has a, a wife and a son. And when we rejoin them, the son is now a teenager. And the son is gay. He has a crush on a boy. And it's what's great about it is that it's not, there's no coming out. There's no... Um, which those stories are still important and I'm not trying to downplay those, but this is like, it just plops us right into the middle. Parents already know that he's gay and they're totally cool with it. Like they, you know, it's just, it's just who he is. And I think that that's so great. And also um, I was trying to prove myself wrong on this, but I think this is the first, at least in an animated Disney film, this is the first uh, interracial family that we've seen. Um, I know Pocahontas, there was, you know, an, an interracial relationship, but this is a family, a mom and a dad and a son, because um, dad is white, mom is black. And, um, and so it's like, in terms of representation, there's so many great things that this movie's doing that are at the point where it's like, it's about freaking time, Disney. Finally, thank you. Thank you for starting to create a world that reflects the one we actually live in. So I think from that perspective, it's it's good. And I think that we need more of this. And I think we need to, you know, I, I hate to say just support these movies so that we get more of them. But I think in some ways, this is one of those. We don't want Disney to get the wrong idea about why this movie isn't working. Because I think the movie isn't working because the story isn't that good. It's oh dear. beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful to look at. But I shouldn't walk away from a Disney movie with so many unanswered questions that make me just go, I don't think this movie totally made sense. So it's, um, I can't really say what it's based on because that'll be a big spoiler. I don't want to give anything away um, for people who haven't seen it, but it, it, there is a legend that this story is based on, but it's, um, and that I think could have been really interesting, except for I also think that was handled a little bit clumsily and, and, um, and that's too bad, but, but really there's so many questions about it. It's basically the, the, the very general story is that there's this community, this village community that lives in these mountains and they can't, they cannot get over the mountains. They've tried, they've mounted all kinds of expeditions. That was what this explorer was doing, was trying to find a way to get over the mountains to see what's on the other side, because their town is, is dying out and then they discover this plant that could save them and so we have this gap of 25 years and we see that this plant is just everywhere and it has turned not just not just saved this village but has really turned it into like this thriving town and um but there's starting to be a problem and the plants are dying out and so they're trying to figure out how to save it and so that's the the general story of the movie but what happens along the way and as you as you learn things it's the basic story is fine but there's just a lot of of little things of like well how did these people get to this place in the first place if there's no way over the mountains and what's gonna happen you know how do they figure this out and why does that happen there's just so many of those kinds of questions that it just it feels like they had a good idea but then they just didn't fully see it through well that's unfortunate it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that one of the other things people talked about with Strange World is that it hasn't been very well advertised. 
That um, is which also it, true. Which it hasn't. Like I, I've seen a, a number of trailers for it actually on on like Hulu and places like that. Um, but I could not figure out what the hell it was about. That's just it. Like it, they've they've been putting out posters and things like that, and it's been you know they've they've also had trailers in theaters, but there's no clear. They haven't. I mean, and this. I mean, like I said, I can't even talk about major parts of the movie because it would be a spoiler and i think this is one of those movies that's really hard to market because you don't want to say anything that's going to spoil the experience for anybody but also you have to tell people a little bit of what it's about if you want to get them to show up yeah like like i I, honestly like when i saw the trailers i was like is this like lost in space for that's what i thought too and it is not (laughs) It is not. I thought, oh, they're like space explorers and they go from world to world. Nope. Nope. Everything okay, stays yeah. in one like one planet. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's unfortunate. I mean, I, I think that, you know, this Disney, like you said, Disney's moving in the right direction in a lot of ways, you know, as <laughs> very belatedly. Uh, right. But but it's unfortunate that like it's not the 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 structure around that is not as as good as it needs to be right because they i'm what i'm worried about happening and this is where it's like i don't want to tell people just go see this movie just to just because even though you're probably not going to like it but the thing about disney and i mean with bob Iger coming back and bob chapik being out which we didn't even talk about that that's a big thing but um i'm hoping that they don't get that they don't take the wrong message away but with people not seeing this and and that giving certain uh certain parts of our society the opportunity to just talk and complain about wokeness and and stuff it does send the message because studios always love to get the wrong message out of things um it does make it look like oh people didn't go see this because of the quote unquote wokeness when in reality there's so many other problems with this movie that have nothing to do with representation. And so that's where it's like, uh, it doesn't deserve to be a hit. It doesn't deserve to make a lot of money because they really did kind of drop the ball on the story. But at the same time, I don't want Disney to use that as an excuse to not continue down this road and not Mm -hmm. give us more films with good representation. Mm, That's yeah, that's, that's difficult. I don't want to go conspiracy theory on it, but I, I'm tempted to almost. <laughs> I know, um, I know, it's but, hard not to. But but yeah, so I mean, you've, we've got the shift from I. So Bob Iger is out. No, no, Bob Chapek. Bob Chay- Iger Chay- was out. out. He retired, and then Chapek came in. They renewed his contract, and then they fired him, and, and then I- brought back Iger out of retirement. So they're just swapping Bobs out. Um, yes. Well, that that will be I. I mean, we'll we'll definitely have to see which direction Disney ultimately goes. Although I know that um, that Chapik is was not good in terms of animation and oh, horrible, tre- yeah. treating animation as a you know viable and real medium. Yeah. Um. That was that was in October where he said you know adults adult animation doesn't exist basically. Yeah, the animation is for kids, and it's like whoa, wow, way to completely decimate or not decimate, but. Um, overlook an entire dismiss I guess an entire part of the industry because there's so much I mean there's so much out there especially that Disney even owns you know yes yeah, <laughs> Bob's Burgers are not for kids <laughs> <laughs> seriously yeah no exactly like how how long until animation is really treated seriously because just like I'm, I mean how many examples do you want <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, well, you know, from from a, a Disney and in terms of Strange World, it sounds like that this is a children's movie in, in a lot of ways. It's it's directed towards it's a family film. Yeah. So I will say we saw this in a group. This is like it's you know, it's our tradition we do a Thanksgiving movie. And so we all went out after Thanksgiving dinner, we all went out and see saw this. And I will say that the youngest person in our group was nine years old and she really liked it um but everyone else was like it was fine <laughs> so. uh t- so from that to a i i would say there's a very adult film i did get the opportunity to see tar Ooh. um 
which you know we can we could talk about for a few minutes i um this, this i don't is know a, i think we should do a whole mini episode for that one i i think that we should i just want to give a re- really really quick uh response to it because i still don't know how i feel about it i have many complicated feelings about it um this is the new film starring Kate blanchett as lydia tar a um not real so i think that people think that she's an action that this is a biopic or something like biopic. that um not real female conductor uh and and this it is it really is very much a character study i think in a lot of ways although there is you know a a a plot that is a part of the film i we can we could possibly do a minisode on it i think that it's one of those films you kind of want to dig into a lot um and like i say i do not know 100 how i feel about it i do know that kate blanchett gives a fantastic performance Mm -hmm. um and everybody around her does too uh the, the entire cast is really stellar but she has to carry the film um, because she is on screen, you know, 98% of the time uh, she, and, and it is so much about her and about her characterization. I don't think that it, I don't know how many lines of dialogue she actually has, but I've never heard a character talk so much in a single film. Um, <laughs> she is fantastic. And she really gives a great deal of depth and an understanding to a character that could have been very one note and that could have been could have been monstrous and could have been too sympathetic uh, at the same time. And she manages to get, you know, maybe a great deal of sympathy for a monster or a great deal of monstrosity for a sympathetic character. Um, it, it's a really fantastic performance and, and I do encourage people to see it. Uh, other, other than that, there are a number of different elements to this film that I do not know how I feel about it. Um, except that I kind of want to watch it again, even though it's a two and a half hour film, uh, I do kind of want to watch it again. And it's definitely one of those that has, I've thought about multiple times since I've seen it. And that says a lot when, when you want to see a two and a half hour movie twice, so close together. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. Like I, I got to the end and actually I, so I rented it. It's, it's uh, available as a, as an in-home theater rental, um, on like places like Amazon and Redbox and Vudu. Um, so it's, it's 20 bucks. So I rented it and I was making the assumption that I was going to watch part of it and then watch the rest of it the next day because I usually don't want to sit down and watch a two and a half hour film in one go. I watched the entire film because I was so fascinated. I wanted to see what was going to happen, um, which is amazing for a character study of a conductor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. This is not something you're like, oh yeah, you're going to be totally riveted by this. This this was the most riveting film that I've seen, uh, I think really since Power of the Dog, that I did not expect to be riveted by. I did not expect to be disengaged with the film. But it, mm-hmm. it, I think that it speaks both to Todd Field's um, brilliant directing and, and especially to Blanchett's performance. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we need to do an episode on that because I also Probably. have complicated feelings about that movie. Well, maybe we could talk about it and work it out <laughs> somehow, <laughs> figure out what we actually feel about it. Yes. Yeah, totally. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> so I think that that is going to close us out for this week. And we'll also close us out for November because we will be in December next time we record. Uh, as, as always, we want to thank all of our lovely and wonderful patrons who include Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for supporting us, guys, and for continuing to support us. We know that money is tight right now. There's all kinds of things going on. Um, if you do want to join our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash citizen dame, and you will get uh, bonus episodes. You will also get stuff. We are like continuing to send out buttons and stickers and things like that. If you haven't, if you are owed something and you have not received it, please let us know and let us know your U.S. mailing address um, and we will get those things out to you just as soon as we can. We also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod, where you can buy some of our merchandise and we are on Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. We also, of course, have our website, that's citizendamepod.com, where we have lists and reviews and various other things and uh, definitely check that out. So you can email us, that's citizendamepod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, something you want us to cover, um, something you disagree with us about, only be polite. Otherwise, we're just going to delete it. Uh, And of course, we are on social media. We are still on Twitter. 
Although, my God, it is declining fast. Um, we are at Citizen Dame Pod, and we are also on Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod and Mastodon, although we haven't really been using the account, but we do have an account on there at uh, Citizen Dame Pod at Mastodon.social. And of course, we are on Letterboxd at Citizen Dame, where you can see our entire Noir member list of all of the films that we have discussed and even more lists because we continue to make lists because lists are fun. Uh, you can also get in touch with us individually. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Mastodon. I created a Hive account as well because it seems like that's where people were going. I don't know. I just keep grabbing Karen M. Peterson in all the places. <laughs> but if you're on a social network, just check Karen M. Peterson and see if it's me. It probably is. And I am the same. Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, Letterboxd, Hive, this post social, I think, is the next one that people are are looking at. I am at LH Business. If you you should be able to find me pretty easily. <laughs> uh, so I think that that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And what does it feel like, Mr. Carpenter? What does what feel like, Miss Hunt? Living on the income from an estate. Well, I. Uh... Or don't you know? Well, I did until the sheriff took it over ten years ago. Why maintain the fiction? Why not work? Believe it or not, I asked one of my many friends for a job once. Executive of a big company, 2,500 employees. He could have pressed a button and done it, but he just laughed. He thought I was joking. Weren't you? No. When I convinced him, he got embarrassed. Said he'd phone me. That was months ago. Now, whenever he sees me, he looks the other way. <laughs> Do you really want a job? Yes. Oh, here you are. Laura, dear, I cannot stand these morons any longer. If you don't come with me this instant, I shall run amok. All right, Waldo. 10.30 tomorrow, Bulletin Company. You've got a job. I concealed my annoyance with masterly self-control. <laughs> <laughs>